Traditionally, we view missions as something we only do in foreign lands. But today's churches have a new challenge. Our neighborhoods are filled with diverse cultures of Americans in desperate need for the gospel of Jesus and life in His church. Most significantly, they need a gospel and a church that are faithful both to the scriptures and the cultural context of America. All right, so up front, I'm going to ask you for your forgiveness. I've got sort of a cold crud, and so I'm going to be likely clearing my throat a little bit. I'll try to turn the mic off when I do it. But just so you know, I'm not being rude. It's just I'm dealing with um, dealing what happens when the, when the weather changes. Uh, we left a little gift on, on the seats there, um, just trying something new out. If you don't have a Bible, obviously, take that one with you. Use it. We use the ESV here. Uh, more importantly, uh, I want you to actually open up your Bible. I know you all love to open up your app and your, uh, I mean, this is, it's, this is a technological age. I understand it. I read my Bible out of my phone and my iPad all the time. But there's something about opening up this these words and reading them on the, the actual paper. There's something I think that's uh, transferred to you when you do that. So every once in a while, I want you to get in the habit of, of opening up your Bible because you know what? It takes some skill to figure out where these books are, where the verses are, and you forget that when you're only using your app, cheating with that thing. Um, we're, we're in week five of our sermon series, Remission, and we're going to finish the series today. And we're going to be in the book of Jonah, so go ahead and turn there. We're going to actually survey the entire book of Jonah today within around the 45 minutes of, of my sermon. So we're going to read a lot of scripture. That's one of the reasons why I gave you that Bible. Now, it's fine print, so if you want to borrow my reading glasses in between points, you are welcome to do that. We're going to read a little bit in, in Jonah. Uh, this is a long passage, and so I'm not going to have you read along with me until verse 17. I'm going to read out loud. And uh, if you care to join me, you can, but I'm not going to force you to. And then you can join me on verse 17, which will be the last verse that we read. It reads, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us give a thought to us that we may not perish. Verse seven. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you are, are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew, uh, the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's read verse 17 together. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Lord, we're here today, gathered as your church, and we thank you for the opportunity to come. Uh, the weather's changed. The fall is here. Uh, there's been a, uh, just a, a heavy 
um, consistent rain in our area all week long. And and although that some can, can sometimes um, change our mood, Lord, we, we say thank you. Thank you for um, the way that you water your earth and nourish it and give it exactly what it needs. Lord, we thank you that you're here uh, in our midst today by your spirit. And, and and again, you are here giving us exactly what we need. We invite you by your spirit to come and to open your word to us. God, we honor your word. Um, we um, submit ourselves to your word. God, may we have ears to hear what you have to say for us to us today. May we have eyes to see something in this book that we perhaps have never seen. We thank you for all those churches that are like us today in this Kingstown area of Alexandria um, who are um, opening your word, worshiping Jesus and making him known, speaking of his uh, his message of the gospel of Jesus and um, presenting this to people who have, ne- have never heard it. And Lord, we pray that you would, um, that you would, that the, the message of the gospel would be good news for us today, that you would change us in hearing it, God, that you would, um, that you would empower us to go and, and give that same message to others. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. And amen. So over the last four weeks, we have endeavored to talk about the gospel um, in the likes of the church and her mission. And the sermon series that we have been doing that in has been called Remission, Rethinking the Church and Her Mission. And our goal really has been to see ourselves as Christians on mission with God in the midst of the culture that he's placed us in. And if we've read the scriptures rightly, if we've heard from the spirit correctly, then I think that what we've been we've been exhorted uh, in, a, in a number of ways to rethink what we're supposed to be doing as Christians and to commit ourselves to doing something differently than, than some of us have been do, have been doing heretofore. Firstly, you know, we've been given um, a, a view of a post-Christian pluralistic society. It, it's no longer the the church that your parents and your grandparents lived in. We're living in a new day. And because of that, we can't expect for people just to come through the doors of the church in droves just because we we open the doors and say that church is open, ring the, the bell of the chapel and say it's time, time for church. Times have changed in that regard. <clears throat> That's not the America that we live in. And in regards to the church and her mission, making disciples, uh, we in past days have thought that we trained up a person that was called to go to foreign lands and they learned the culture, assimilated into the culture and brought the message of the gospel. And that was that was uh, how missions were done. Well, we can uh, tell that America has changed and we can just open our own door, not even go across um, across the state, but go open our own door in our own house and look at our own neighbor, either right beside us or across the street and see that they need uh, the same gospel that people around the world need. And we have the opportunity to do that. Secondly, if the statistics are true, you know, the culture that surrounds us is filled with people who aren't likely to come um, come to church, um, come to Jesus unless we point the way to him. And so the question for us that we've been posing for these four weeks is, you know, how do we do that? How do we present Jesus to people that don't know him? And uh, the answer was we have to see ourselves as missionaries that God has made, has put us on mission with him in the culture. What does a missionary do? A missionary um, gets trained up a little bit. They learn the language. They go to a culture. They assimilate. They become like the people that they are that they are called to. Thirdly, um, when we're given the opportunity, we actually we actually have to. Be prepared to both proclaim and defend the hope that we have in Jesus. And that really is called evangelism. We don't have to um, think that we uh, come as the savior, that our words are going to save anybody. But we God has um, tasked us with the message of of giving the hope, giving the reason for the hope that we believe in Jesus. And this whole um, idea of remission, there are two upfront issues that we all have to contend with. And the first is, 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 is simply this. If I'm called to see myself as a missionary in the culture and the role of a missionary is to assimilate in the culture, how far is going too far? You ever thought about that? I mean, uh, as we when we looked at the first sermon, imitating Jesus in the in the sermon series, 
we, we said there are some people in churches that are they're stuck in the past. Nostalgia, traditionalism, and uh, they're so stuck in the past that they they aren't relevant to what's going on in our world today. And then there are some who are so so much pressing toward the future that they become so relevant that uh, the gospel doesn't maintain its distinctiveness. And so if we are to be missionaries uh, in a culture like today, how far is too far if we're trying to uh, assimilate? And what I've done, uh, what I want to do for you uh, real quick is, is just look at some biblical principles for cultural decision-making. I mean, how do I, how do I, how do I assimilate into the culture without ruining my witness? Listen to this statistic. First of all, um, statistics are that within two years, most new Christians no longer have Christian friends. There's this weird dynamic that happens with all of us. Um, God pulls us out of whatever life we were living, um, whatever you were doing, and he sort of cleans us up a little bit with his gospel. We go to church, we have new friends, and Somehow, some way, oftentimes we we lose contact with all of our people who are not Christians um, such that we aren't able to rightly do that thing that God calls us to do. Make disciples of people who don't know Jesus. Um, John 2.15 says this. First John 2.15, rather. It says don't love the world. So in a sense, we are supposed to separate ourselves to be set apart for Jesus um, um, and, and loving him rightly. But Jesus says this in John 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, that uh, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus is saying, really, um, you're in it, but not of it. OK, we're in the world because he wants us to be his witnesses and to disciple those who don't know him, that through his message, the message of the gospel, that they might come to, to faith in him. But we're not of it. We've died to all those things that are in the world. All right. So here's some here's some thoughts just uh, from me on um, how you make a decision of what you do in a world that um, that really doesn't know Jesus anymore. We aren't going to to go through all of these. In fact, what I'll do is I will uh, uh, when we send the update out this week, I will uh, paste these in there for you to have. But I think it's a good list, and it's also a uh, some good scripture verses for all of us to uh, reflect on as we decide. You know, what's how far is too far as we try to be a part of the culture? Firstly, ask yourself, is what I'm doing beneficial to me personally and to the gospel generally? And just think about the the areas that you would have to go in to be a missionary in the culture that we live in today. Um, What what would you have to do to go and reach your neighbor across the street? What, what, uh, What things might he be involved in that you might have to involve yourself in just to be a friend to that person Across the street, is it beneficial to me personally and to the gospel generally? First Corinthians six twelve says, "All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful." All thing, I mean, the the grace of God really gives you freedom to do a lot of stuff. Anything the Bible doesn't say, don't do, uh, and that's a lot of things. But there are some things as a Christian, it would not be beneficial. It it would not be good for you to do it. Um, secondly, will I lose self control or be mastered by what I participate in? The latter half of 1 Corinthians 6, 12 says this. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. If you have a habitual sin in your life that as a Christian you have overcome, gained freedom from, I would tell you that's likely a weak, uh, a place that you need to guard yourself in for the rest of your life. And um, and if you will just dibble and dabble in it, then you likely you have the the propensity to lose self-control and be to be mastered by that area again if you should venture into it. So you have to be careful with that. Um, next one would be, will I be doing this in the presence of someone who I know will fall into sin as a result? First Corinthians 8 basically says that we should not be a stumbling block to those who are weaker in the faith. Okay, so you have to be um, looking out to make sure that you're not going to ruin the wit, uh, that your witness is not going to cause someone else um, t- to stumble and fall into uh, a sin um, because of what they see you doing. How about this one? If I fail to do this, will I lose opportunities to share the gospel? You know, I've been in countries as a military officer where I've seen um, 
folks, not necessarily missionaries, but people who are put in situations. Uh, their uh, food is put in front of them. There's a cultural thing, a tradition, a ritual that if they don't participate in that tradition or that ritual, then they really have uh, ruined their opportunity to, to get into um, the culture that they're trying to be a part of. And this could be the same thing for us uh, as, as Christians. Uh, can I do this with a clear conscience? Uh, Acts 24 basically says that we should take pains to make sure that we have a clear conscience before God and before all men. And so if I'm if I'm going to be felt if I'm going to feel guilty or be condemned by an by participating in a certain act, then absolutely I should not do it. Am I convinced that this is what God desires for me to do? Some things you just have to pray and ask God, Lord, I mean, do you do you really want me doing this? And I think he will he will give you a fair answer to that. Does my participation proceed from faith in Jesus? Romans 14 says that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you can't do it with a good heart toward God um, and the faith he's given you, then you absolutely should not do it. And the last one, am I doing this to help other people or am I just being selfish? First Corinthians 10, 24 says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And we are going to talk about being a good neighbor today. OK, I, I didn't cover all those, but I will put them um, in in an email for you this week. And really the the purpose is if we're to be missionaries in the culture that we're living in today, I mean, how, how, how far is too far? And that's a good question to ask yourself. And then you have to struggle uh, with scripture and, and with your own heart and decide um, what's right for you in the context of what God has given us in in his guidance in scripture. The other issue that's upfront in terms of being a missionary in the culture today is what if I love Jesus but I don't like the people that are around me. Have you ever asked yourself that? Suppose you, I mean, perhaps you have that issue going on right now. You say, I mean, Lord, I love you. I love Jesus, but I just don't like my neighbor. I don't like somebody in my family. I don't like the people that are around me. And I mean, have you looked up lately and, and just said to yourself, I mean, man, look at all the things that are, I mean, I don't like what I hear. I don't like what I see that's going on in the world. And there are plenty of reasons right here in D.C. Metro, government shutdown and all that's going on in Congress. And, um, you know, the, the, just the, the place that we live, uh, there, there are reasons for us not to like both people and the place where we live. I think Jesus gives us some pretty concrete guidance. In the Great Commandment, he says that we don't have to like our neighbor, but he does say that we are called to love our neighbor. But the truth is, some Christians, some of us really, refuse to be on mission with God because, I mean, think about it. We, we dislike the people and the culture that God has put around us. Now, we purposely avoid, um, we purposely avoid people that we think are unpleasant. We purposely avoid people, types of people, ethnicities, people that live in certain parts of the city. Um, because we don't want to go around them. And I think that really is the message in the book of Jonah. So we're going to take a look at the book of Jonah. You know, God called Jonah, a religious man, to go to a very irreligious city. Um, Jonah initially refused to go, uh, and he was supposed to go. God called him to go. God tasked him to go. But this is Jonah's deal. He was self-righteous. He was rebellious. Um, Jonah had a lot of issues on his inside that God had to work out of him. And Jonah didn't understand the gospel of God's grace. And I think when we look at the story of Jonah, we'll figure out that perhaps we don't understand the message of God's grace either. So go ahead and pick up your Bibles. We're going to we're going to actually look at this pretty closely. What I want us to get out of this is a lesson in loving our neighbor. And we're going to learn that from Jonah. So a little bit of context. Um, Jonah was. Jonah was a historical figure. I mean, we see him in 2 Kings 2. He was a prophet uh, during the days of Jeroboam II. Jesus talked about about Jonah. So a lot of people have trouble with this book saying it's fictitious. It's not real because there's a fish that swallows up a man. I'm going to talk about that in a couple seconds. But um, during the time of Jonah, the nation of Israel was very much like America. You know, It was financially prosperous, but it was spiritually impoverished. Israel was a divided nation. This is the eighth century. And so you had the tribes of the the northern tribes called Israel. You had the southern tribes called Judah. Um, The biggest, baddest, most evil nation on the planet at that time was Assyria. 
um, they were the, the, the arch rival of Israel at the time, and they were a wicked nation. Um, Nineveh was one of four of the principal cities of Assyria. It was the most prominent of those four principal cities in all of Assyria. This is what the prophet Nahum says about Nineveh. He says it was full of witchcraft, murder, prostitution, drunkenness, cruelty and pride. So, so much so when Assyria went to conquer a nation, the first thing that they would do, they would find the, the women. They would find those women who were pregnant with child and they would cut those women open, rip them out and then slaughter the babies. This is how wicked and evil Assyria was. And Jonah knew this when God was calling him to go and preach the good news to this wicked, um, this wicked city. We find in verse one, Jonah was a prophet. First uh, Corinthians 12 says uh, prophecy is a gift given by the spirit that enables a person to hear or see what God is saying and to foretell that about things and people. And Jonah had that gift. And God commanded Jonah to go preach to Nineveh. Um, He wanted him to give him a message, a very simple message. Really, God wanted Jonah to say eight little words. We're going to find out what those words were in chapter three. But guess what Jonah did? Jonah went from where he was to the coastal city of Joppa. He bought a ticket. He hopped a boat to the uh, nearest boat going out of town. And he went to a, a city called Tarshish, which is present day Spain. Now, to, to get to, to, to put this in uh, just geographical parameters, okay, Joppa is in the, in the Middle East. He gets on a boat and goes all the way to Spain, which is about 2,500 miles away by sea. Jonah went the opposite direction, and he was trying to escape God. Along the route, God caused a storm to, uh, to, to blow He caused the wind to blow that caused a storm, rather. It threatened the ship. It threatened the lives of the men on it. Uh, The sailors get scared, as we would, too, uh, when a boat is about to capsize. And these sailors, they they were pagans. We don't know exactly what country they were from, but they were basically polytheistic. They had a God for everything. And when when the storm comes and, you know, probably seasoned sailors and so forth, for them, seasoned sailors on a boat, in a storm to be fearful of their lives, you know, it had to have been a pretty violent storm. And they're calling out to all of their gods, any God they can think of that they might that they could call on, that they think might um, cause this storm to society. They're calling on them. They're 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 thinking this. One of us has a God that's angry. And as and we all pray to one of these gods, perhaps this God will be appeased by our prayer. And so um, this is what happens. Nothing. And, you know, I, I can't go into this, but really, this is uh, this is what happens when we uh, when we put, when we create an idol and give it power over us, um, over power, over our our worship of God. When we actually need when we need God the most, our idol is going to fail us. OK, so this really happens to these guys. They have a false God. They're calling out to it. And he does nothing. And so the skipper finds Jonah fast asleep in the, in the lower part of of the boat. And think about it. Jonah is asleep. There's a tempestuous storm going on. And the skipper knows something is up. He's like, hey, dude, we're all calling out to our gods and you're down here sleeping. What's going on with you? Do you have a God? Perhaps you can pray to him and get us out of this mess. And so uh, it doesn't we don't know how that resolves. But we do know the next scene is that they're casting lots. And so that's like. um, Thank you, Dan. That's like um, it's like. uh, What do you call that stuff? Playing craps. Shooting craps. Right. Except they they got rocks. They, They got it in a little box. Probably a container. They've, just, they've taken the rock and they've put an up and a down on it. They're shaking it up and they're going to either throw it against the wall or just dump it out. And somehow fate would determine who I mean, who's God or who is responsible for this. And the text tells us that um, by fate, uh, they, they, they found out that Jonah is the one that really is behind. There's something about Jonah that um, that's behind all this this storm stuff. And. Uh, interestingly, the sailors come up to him and they start asking questions. I mean, who are you? 
where you're from, what's going on in your life that would cause all this stuff to to happen to us. And Jonah, um, this is an interesting point as well. Jonah, he doesn't hesitate to tell them, I'm a Hebrew. I serve the one and only God. I, I know you guys are calling out to all these gods, but my God is is the God. He's he's Yahweh. OK, the God that made the heavens. He also made the seas and the dry land. And the reason why we're in this predicament is because I'm sort of in trouble with my God. Um, it's probably it's, there's probably a lot of interesting conversation that goes on with Jonah and these men. They don't initially just want to just toss him overboard. He tells them the way that you can cause the storm to stop is just toss me over. And they choose not to do that. Instead, they 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 continue to worry. They they get their oars out and they start rowing, rowing, rowing. What are they trying to do? They're trying to save themselves in their own strength. And we oftentimes do that, too. We get in trouble. Life gets hard and we we get our oars out and we start to row. We try to we try to save ourselves in our own strength. But it doesn't work. And so they come to Jonah and Jonah basically tells them again, hey, guys, the way that you save yourself from from the plight of my God is is to throw me over. And so they pray to his God. Look at verse. um, Verse 14. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Lord, whenever you see the word Lord, L-O-R-D, all capital letters, that's that's Yahweh. That's that covenant name that the Hebrews used uh, identifying the God, the God that they were even uh, so in awe of that they refused to say his real name. And so these sailors from the time of Jonah introducing them to his God through this storm, recognize that his God is he's the real deal. And they start praying to him and then they decide to they decide to throw Jonah over. And then we get to verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So before long, I mean, Jonah is Jonah is swallowed up by a fish. This is the place where most of us get hung up in the book of Jonah. This is what has scholars and historians and, you know, people all over the world saying there ain't no way this can be true. But this, let me let me just tell you, if you Google, go home, Google um, Man swallowed up by fish, but lived a, lived life afterwards. You'll, you'll come up with something. You'll come up with some real life events of people who were swallowed by fishes that lived. Now, they might not have all their limbs and they might be a little emaciated when they come out, but it's happened. People have been swallowed up by fish and lived. The Hebrew word here for great fish is um, means whale, but it also could mean any kind of, of large shark. There are accounts of in history of of men being swallowed by large fish that survive. Um, um, medical science would prove that the, the body can survive in such an environment with very little oxygen. Of course, whales, mammals, they go down to the depths of the water and they come up at some point to, to get some air. <sighs> Open that big mouth, close it up. Who knows? Maybe they're uh, in, in um, they're sealing up a little bit of oxygen there. Whatever the case, okay, we don't need to resolve that. Why, why don't we resolve it? If you can believe Genesis one one in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. If you can believe that Jesus died and rose from the grave, believing that a fish swallowed a man and he lived to tell about it later, that's easy. Think about it. Um, what happened next? We get to verse two, uh, chapter two, verse one. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. Jonah has a come to Jesus moment. You guys know what that means? It means something. I mean, I don't know if this was the, after the first day, the second day, maybe the third day. Um, we don't know if Jonah was in and out of consciousness. We, we don't know any of those details. All we know is that at some point. In the belly of this great fish, Jonah has a come to Jesus moment and he says some pretty great words in prayer. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. That's two, uh, uh, chapter two, verse one. And he answered me out of the belly of the well. He says, God is speaking to me in this fish. I'm hearing him call my name. For you cast me into the deep. He surely did into the heart of the seas and uh, and the flood surrounded me. 
Then I said, I am driven away from your side. He, he's, he's reflecting on his lot in life at that moment. Okay, he's looking back a little bit. I was a free man walking on land. I was free to do anything I wanted. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm in the belly of a fish. And it's as if I'm in, I'm in hell. Okay, inside of a fish. And then he gets to verse 7. These are interesting words that he says in verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. I don't know how much you know about the temple, but Jonah is is he's having a time of worship in the belly of of this fish. Uh, Whenever you think about the temple, uh, the temple was this grand artifact. Okay, great. This grand structure. You had uh, the part leading up to it that people used to congregate in. And you had an, an outer court. Where the Gentiles used to, anybody could come and just hang out, bring sacrifices to the priest. Then you had an inner court that only the priest could go into. And then you had all the, the articles for worship, the brazen also, the lampstand, the table for the showbread. And then you had the holy of holies where only the priest could go. And that only one time of year. And so Jonah, when he says these words, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. He's re- he's seeing himself in former days going to the temple of God and worshiping the God that, that he loves and serves. And really, the picture that I think he's getting is going all the way in into the presence of God. And what, what is that thing that's that that's symbolic of God's presence in the temple is the ark. What did the ark have in it? It had it had some specific things. First, it had the tablets with the Ten Commandments that represents God's rule. He had had the manna, a jar of manna, which means God's provision. It had Aaron's rod, which represented um, God's authority. And it had one neat thing on top of the ark. It had the mercy seat. Jonah's having a come to Jesus moment where God brought him through this this tunnel of worship. And he's remembering all the things that he had been able to do, all the things that he should have been doing. And he was he was being shown a picture of God's mercy at that point. And then we get to verse eight and verse nine, which are the two most important verses, I think, in this whole book. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I will but with uh, but I with a voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I, uh, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Two of the most important verses in all this book. Jonah is firstly um, prophetically rebuking his own country, Israel. Okay, the Israelites were uh, were idolatrous. They had forsaken their God and had gotten close to all these other nations and had chosen to worship their their gods, their idols. The nation of Israel had forsaken the the one true God and they made gods of stone and of wood and chose to worship them over God. So he's saying when you give up, when you give, when you when you would rather hold on to something that's not a God and idolize that, then you give up any hope of of the steadfast, enduring love of God. And then Jonah turns this in on himself and he realizes that in himself he he had idolized his nationality Okay, the reason why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh was because uh, he was a Hebrew and he recognized the Hebrews were the were the people of God. And he wanted salvation to only be for his people. He didn't want to go and offer God's message of salvation to a people that he thought didn't deserve it. Jonah was idolatrous over his ethnicity and he recognized in that moment that, wow, I can bring the message, but I don't get to choose who gets saved or not. Salvation is of the Lord. You know, the, the this exact wording here of, of this, this phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord in verse 9, is this. Salvation is the Lord's, which means we can't do anything in this process of, of salvation. It's God that chooses who he will save and who he will rescue. God's in charge of that whole business of salvation. And it's in this moment that, God, that, that Jonah was getting this revelation that God was sending him to bring a message of hope to a people that didn't deserve it because God had chosen that salvation is, is his job. And he decides who gets to have mercy and, and who doesn't. Verse 10, verse 10 of chapter two makes me laugh. <clears throat> um, when I was a young kid, 
about five, my grandfather on my mother's side, he's actually my step-grandfather, if, if, that, if that makes sense to you, um, he had taken me fishing. I, you know, I caught a little fish like that. I'm five. And we came back, cleaned it up. My grandma did all that. You know, she, I mean, she made it taste good. But uh, something happened in the process of me eating this fish. Uh, it had bones in it. Uh, it got caught in my throat. I mean, I was choking. You know, a five-year-old that chokes on fish, that's going to be a traumatic moment for the rest of your life, right? So even today, I like fish. Don't love it. I like it. But if you give me fish with bones in it, I'm probably not going to eat it. Because in that moment, I mean, my grandfather, he's like, Hamlet maneuver. <laughs> like, I mean, he's, uh, I mean, you know, of course, I, I, I throw up. And all the, you know, fortunately, the fish comes out of me with the bones that were making me choke. So verse 10 is, is just funny to me because it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So, temp- you know, normally a person eats bad fish. And, you know, it's going to come up out of you. You get to vomit it up. But in this case, the fish ate a bad man. In other words, a a man with a bad attitude and and he vomited him up. And just as God's providence would would hold, he vomited him up twenty five hundred miles all the way back from Tarshish all the way outside of Nineveh. Um, That's just the way it is. I'm going to read a few verses in uh, in chapter three. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. He's giving Jonah a second chance. That great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Jonah was, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for fast and put on sackcloth from the uh, from the greatest of them to the least of them. You know what just happened? This is record of the absolute greatest revival in the history of mankind. Right here in these verses, half a million people just fell to their knees tore their clothes, put sack, you know, they put ashes on their face, and they bowed in repentance to these simple words that Jonah just said. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. God was rebuking them. They heard the word in the power of the Lord, and they repented. Isn't that incredible? What did Jonah do? He got mad, pouted. We're not going to read chapter 4. But basically what Jonah did, um, he went outside of the city. If you read uh, starting around uh, uh, chapter four, verse five, he went outside of the city. He made a booth. He sat down in the booth and he waited. He waited and he waited. He wanted to see what was going to go on. I don't know if Jonah stayed around and he saw the people falling down, bowing before God and putting sackcloth uh, ashes on themselves. And, you know, just the, the, the symbol of repentance that they, that they had done in, in Nineveh. But Jonah pouted. He got mad because God made him go into Nineveh and say these simple eight words. And he sat in a booth, made a booth, sat in a booth. And then God does something very benevolent to him. God caused a plant to grow. It's hot, you know, in the Middle East. This is this is Mosul, Iraq. I spent actually 13 months here in the province of Nineveh, which is coincidental. And, you know, all year round it's, it's kind of hot. So God causes a plant to grow to give Jonah shade. And the scripture says Jonah was pleased with that plant. It's like having a toy and, and just loving it. And then because God saw that Jonah was more pleased with this plant than the repentance that he had just Scene. This great revival just happened. God sent a worm, ate the plant, plant wilted, and then the sun beat down on Jonah's head. And the reason why I think I think Jonah probably had a bald head. I mean, the scripture wouldn't say that unless Jonah was bald. And so um, God beat that sun down on Jonah's head so much so that he almost fainted. And then um, God asked Jonah these words. In fact, he asked him twice in verse four. Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So Jonah is basically saying, God, you might as well go ahead and kill me because I'm not happy with the the outcome of today's events. I mean, I didn't want to come here in the first place and you sent me. And the the chapter ends, the book ends, um, interestingly, with a question. Verse, uh, Verse 10 and 11. 
And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and so and also much cattle? All right. So those are interesting words that that God would end this book in a question like that. But really, uh, those are convicting words. Those words and this message of this book brings um, us all to this point. Um, Like Jonah, we oftentimes love the things that God gives us. You know, God gives us a good life. He might give us a car, a home, provides for our needs. But we don't oftentimes like the people that he puts around us. And this, this, this last two verses here gives us this, you know, it's just the realization Jonah was pleased with that little plant that God gave him that provided him shade. But Jonah didn't care a hoot about a half a million people being shown the mercy of God and then coming to repentance over the words of a man that that really even didn't want to deliver that message of hope. And I think oftentimes um, that's that's the case with us as well. There's a lot in this book of Jonah. As I was studying this week, I, 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 I told my wife, I was like, oh, man, I missed it. We should have just like I should have just went to a different passage to talk about loving your neighbor and covered Jonah. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, fully for for all of us. There's a lot of good stuff here. Uh, so much so I got a whole paragraph of stuff that I want to talk to you about in regards to things that we can pick up in Jonah for our life. But I'm going to exercise some self-control and just pull out about five lessons from Jonah in regards to loving uh, loving our neighbor. The first is this idea of sin and grace. You know, um, Jonah looks bad here, doesn't he? He looks bad. He looks wicked, at least as wicked as the people that God has sent him to to talk to. He looks as wicked as the Ninevites in terms of of his attitude. And God has sent this man of God to preach to them. The interesting thing is Jonah is writing about himself. And so we get an up close view of a man who's coming into the repentance of God. And this is an important point. It's very likely that God continued to work on Jonah's heart days and months and years beyond what happened in the record of of him being swallowed by this fish and the repentance of of the Ninevites. Here we get a glimpse of exactly how sinful Jonah was, how graceful our God is and really what kind of self-righteous, rebellious person he was. And in that, we should see ourselves that we can be just like him. God gives us a message. He gives us hope and he gives us an opportunity to simply say it. Say those eight words. OK, God loves you. He's holy. Um, you're sinful. The way that he's provided for you to um, account for your sin is to the death of his son. Okay, we're the proclaimers of that message. And sometimes we're so self-righteous and so rebellious that we don't even want to give that. So we should see ourselves in Jonah. The second lesson would be simply Jesus and Jonah. Um, Jonah, again, is a historical figure. He's in Scripture. If you look at historical accounts uh, you know, in, in the world, he's a man that people talk about. Jesus legitimizes the story of Jonah. Jesus mentions Jonah in Matthew 12, 39. He's talking to the scribes and Pharisees and he's saying no sign is going to be given to you except the sign of Jonah. And then he says these words, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. So will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so Jesus is basically saying, I'm the greater Jonah. There's a greater principle here in the book of Jonah that's being displayed about me. And that principle is the very sign that you see. And it's not just being in the ground three days and then coming back to life. It's, it's something even greater than that. It's that God's um, God does powerful things through weakness. Think about uh, what the Jews expected. They expected uh, a ruler to come and to come in power and to redeem them from uh, their plight over the over the Romans. And Jesus came in weakness. And Jonah is a picture of that. Jonah is a picture of Jesus. Jonah is this picture of how God uses people who are weak, not strong, to do his bidding. And, and we are like that. The third lesson is we are Jonah. 
you know, in synagogues, even today, um, during Yom Kippur, which is around September of, of every year, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement, uh, Jewish people will read the book of Jonah. They'll stand up, they'll read these words that we just read, and they will say these words, we are Jonah, meaning we identify with Jonah's rebelliousness, we identify with his self-righteousness, we identify with, with his idolatry, and we say we are those people. And honestly, we should say that we are Jonah today as well. We are Jonah uh, because there's people around us that we don't like. God is giving us a message of hope, and that message can be freedom and life to a people who are lost and without God in this world. We are Jonah when we fail to simply proclaim that message. We aren't the ones who save, but we have uh, the, the power is in the, the, the God of the gospel. But we've been given and entrusted with the message to give it. And when we don't simply give that message to our city and to our neighbors, then then we're being like Jonah. But also in this idea of 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 the sign of Jonah, we you know, we are Jonah because God takes delight to. He takes delight in things that are weak. God shows himself strong through weak things. And such are we. We're weak. We're rebellious. But God can do amazing things through people like us when we simply avail ourselves to him to be his hands and his feet. Think about how God pursued Jonah in this story. And God pursues us in the same way. He pursues us to do in the lives of people, what he's already done for us. He shows mercy to us so that we can show mercy to other people. He forgives our rebelliousness and our self-righteousness so that he can do that same thing through us to other people. You know, God puts us on display. We're people who don't have it quite right. In fact, in many ways, we're messed up and, and dysfunctional. But God takes people like us and he puts us on display. Our, our marriages and our friendships and just how we do life in general. And he allows us to, as, as messed up as we are, to rub elbows with people who don't know Jesus and to affect them by the hope that's in us. The fourth lesson would be simply this. And we see this in Jonah. We can run from God, but we can't outrun God. Jonah tried to, out, Jonah tried to run from God 2,500 miles away, but God, you know, God found a way. Um, Jonah leaves us to ponder who we would be if God had stopped running after us and simply left us to ourselves. And so ask, your this, ask yourself this question. In what ways are you running from God? What ways are you running from his, the mission that he's giving you to, to give the gospel to other people? And as much like he called Jonah to repentance, what would repentance look like for you? Lastly, this is idea of loving our neighbor. Um, Jesus is speaking. Jesus is answering a lawyer that asks him, so who is my neighbor? And we have the whole story in the in the Gospels of of the Good Samaritan. And from that, we learn it's not just being a good neighbor, but, um, you know, it's really who is a neighbor. I, I would tell you a neighbor is actually your neighbor. Open your door. Look to your left. Look to your right. Look across the street. Those people are your neighbors and we're supposed to be neighborly to them. But I love um, I love how the, the, the Bible describes Jesus as being a friend of sinners. I, I would tell you that being a neighbor is simply being a friend of sinners. And so when you are being on mission with God, you're simply living your life as a friend of sinners. It means being welcoming to people that may not be like you. I think it's hanging around people that are broken, that are lost, that are messy. Those are the people that God loves. And those are the people that he's called us to, uh, that he's called us to. So why did Jonah um, why didn't God send Jonah to Nineveh? I think the, the answer simply is he sent him to the city. He sent him to a city filled with people, filled with neighbors, filled with neighborhoods, because God loves, God loves people, God loves cities. Cities are strategic. Think about our own city filled with all kinds of people. Cities are strategic in the mind of God. God always sends his people into the middle of really of, of cities and neighborhoods that are messy. And he allows us to be messy as well. But he allows us to take that great news and give it to people who have never heard that it might change their lives. He allows us, as First Peter 2 tells us, to 
do good deeds before people that we might glorify our God and point people to him. God wants us to exercise compassion. He, he gives compassion to us that we might exercise it to others. He um, encourages repentance in us that we might encourage it in other people. And I'll close with, with this. this. This one gospel imperative I think that we get from this book of Jonah. It's the sin of indifference. If you ever think about, I mean, why is it that I don't take the gospel into my culture and give it to the people that are around me? It's, it's typically the sin of indifference. Oftentimes it's the, it's the fear of man. But more importantly, I think it's just a sin of indifference. What's indifference? It's just we've grown callous to those things that are around us. And we need to we need to repent. Okay, we need to repent of the sin of indifference. What if what if the hearts that we have for our neighbor are like the heart that Jesus had for Jerusalem? In Matthew 23, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he's looking at what that city has been the city of God. He's looking at the the plight of it at that current time. He's looking at the future of what that city will be going to be torn down in A.D. 70 and just completely raised to the ground. But God is going to raise it back up again into a new city. And he's saying, uh, you know, woe is woe is me. I'm, I'm Jesus lamented over the people and also for for that city. Jesus wept for Jerusalem. And I think once we repent of our sin for sin of indifference, perhaps God would change our hearts for the people and the city where we live. And so as we close and come to communion today, I want to call us to simply call us to repentance. I want to call us to repentance that we would. That we would simply um, Ask God to forgive us of the opportunities that he's given us to be um, be his light in, in a dark world. That he would forgive us for those times that we've judged people without knowing them. That he would forgive us for the times that we told ourselves that we didn't know enough, that we had to have the, the gospel perfectly. And because we didn't know it perfectly, we chose not to to share it. That he would forgive us for um, for simply not proclaiming his good news to people that need it. Martin Luther said that all of life is repentance. That every day when we see places in our life that aren't aligning with with the scripture, that we simply should confess our sin and ask God to forgive us. And so in this whole idea of remission, um, rethinking the church and her mission, I think this really all boils down to um, you know, sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong. And in places where we get it wrong, let's just repent. So, Father, we thank you. Thank you for helping us see your goodness in our world. We thank you, Lord God, that even in our disobedience, even when we come to you uh, half hearted, that you work through us. We thank you that it's not through the strong that you work, but it's through the weak and and you work through people like us. And so, Lord God, forgive us when we judge people that we see on the street. Forgive us. We pray that um, when we think we're doing OK, but others aren't. Lord, we, we pray that you would um, like Jonah, that you would show us your mercy, that you give us a second chance. God, that you would give us an opportunity to say those eight words. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. God, that you would call people to yourself through us. God, we pray that you would help us in the ways that we don't even know we need help. Pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen and amen.